0: Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Codish. My name is Eric Chen, and I'm an engineer on the Heroku ecosystem team. We deal with everything add-ons related. Today, we have another exciting episode. We're going to be diving in and talking about SEO with Justin Abrams and Michael Rispoli. We'll dive into an introduction of what search engine optimization is and what does it entail. We'll talk about how to drive more traffic and the intersection between development and search. Justin and Michael, want to quickly introduce yourself, talk briefly about what you do, and we'll start with
0: what SEO really means. Sure. Thanks, Eric. Um, My name is Justin Abrams. Uh, I do a couple of different things, one of which is work for uh, one of the most internationally recognized technology organizations called BrightEdge. BrightEdge is a leading SEO technology working with some of the most recognizable brands on a global scale. Uh, for them, I have the privilege of being a senior solutions consultant, which simply means I'm a full-time SEO, uh, and I engage with these brands in their earliest days as a global onboarding manager. I also have the privilege of working with Mike Rispoli, my dear friend and partner, um, in a boutique digital agency here on Long Island focused on organizations uh, that have a social and environmental footprint and consciousness.
2: I'm Mike Raspoli. I am a software engineer. I work as the lead software engineer at the Not Worldwide, as well as with Justin as a part of Cause of a Kind, our boutique agency.
1: Cool. Just start off, give us some more background context of what is SEO. Um, So my understanding, and it's a very bare understanding, is that search engine optimization is Uh, basically a strategy around how to gain more traffic, um, to your website and exposure to like Google searches and increasing like marketing value through like maybe quote unquote appeasing the search algorithms. Right. Is that kind of accurate?
0: Well, Eric, pretty good job with some of the basic fundamentals and kind of you know the the historical understanding of what SEO actually is. And fundamentally, you know that that's all still relevant. Um, but SEO has become you know the digital epicenter for lack of a better experience. You know we focus on SEO as understanding the true consumer voice. What does the consumer actually expect from the organizations and brands that provide solutions, products, services within the marketplace? The goal for SEO is that it you know, equates with a business is understanding how to make better business decisions, not necessarily just within the marketing mix, but also throughout the organization as we're here today talking about development and how can we create a product that truly solves our consumer needs. Now, SEO also has this very traditional part, which has to do with, obviously, the algorithm and how do you improve the performance of your website from things like speed performance and understanding the different content and product services that you might offer, uh, and then fine-tuning your website towards a best practice and understanding your uh, competitive environment. But at the end of the day, it really all is about what your consumer expects from you and your competition, and where does that experience need to evolve?
2: and i think from the development side of things it's very easy to sort of fall into the idea that search engine optimization is all about bots and how they crawl a site but really it's more about how users are using a site just like justin said it's really it's about creating fast experiences that are accessible to all people and the algorithm does optimize for those things, so it becomes sort of a byproduct of what you're building to actually make this a part of your of your development process.
1: I see. So it sounds like there's a lot of focus on the consumer and also the analytics side too. Can you guys talk a little bit more about that? What type of insights uh, are most important to you guys when you look for these things? Um, and how do you make these like interactions better?
0: So in in my world, in the marketing side, we have two personas that we always need to satisfy. One is the actual human, which obviously has a lot of sub personas that we really need, need to take into consideration. But the other is that bot experience. And Mike actually just nailed it a couple seconds ago, which is saying, Uh, You know, you ultimately create an experience, whether that's content, whether it's new technology, whether it's a new form of marketing and engagement, whatever your initiative is, we, we ultimately are trying to determine what is the best decision for our customer to engage with. And that customer can also be a robot, right? That robot has to have an equally enjoyable experience. It has to be fast. It has to be easily understood. It has to have places to go with interlinking and connection.
1: You mean the robot because it's crawling your website
0: Absolutely. And that experience, it mimics what your human is going to experience as well. So if you provide an experience with your human consumer in mind, which is ultimately the way that you gain authority and trust and become an expert in comparison to competitors that are in your space, you also satisfy that robot crawl experience looking for the different things that a human would find to be valuable.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. As I, as I alluded to before, it kind of starts with, you know, even just coming down to the structure of your web page, right? The way using proper semantic HTML, um, labeling things like forms correctly and your links, um, ensuring that there's always a way to move about the site, right? That navigation is easy for the bot to find. Therefore, it's going to be easy for A human to find so a lot of this stuff goes hand in hand but just ensuring that there are actually routes or pages for every single resource in your site is pretty huge because yeah for the robot that is great and so but we kind of went through this period of time maybe a few years ago where single page apps were very big and routes were sort of falling by the wayside. You could go to a lot of page, a lot of websites and you'd be clicking around and you'd hit the refresh button and you'd be taken right back to the beginning. And that's the kind of thing we want to avoid because even for a human, if they get someplace and they want to share it with somebody, that URL becomes huge. So it really, um, on the search engine side, it all comes down to the URL, the resource. What is this, what does this page deliver and how is it going to index? But that also answers the question of, why would a person want to share this page? What What is a person looking to accomplish yeah. by being on this page? Mm. So really thinking about the two goes very much hand in hand. Um, so that's why I like to not think of them as separate. And then it, it also ties back into that accessibility piece. Accessibility on the web is huge right now. And all of those elements are things that particularly Google's algorithm biases towards right it's it gives you points for things like speed but also things like greater accessibility and uh, more text more information things that things that would make your website more
1: valuable to a consumer so what's an example when you said accessibility i really like that i think that's definitely super important in this digital age um does google crawl the site for like title or header tags in the html To make sure that um, screen readers can also like read off of these and doing so that does that kind of factor into the way their search algorithm is kind of displaying results or yeah what's the correlation
2: so nobody knows the exact nature of the algorithm which which becomes which that that becomes the frustrating part i i don't know exactly what they bias towards but in general we know for in, like you said the header tags right like an h1 should represent kind of the title of the page and then you you went we went through a kind of period where people were putting h1s on everything to try and hack the algorithm which which is not semantically correct right a page should have a single h1 title or even a section should have one H1 to it. And then H2s and H3s should not be used to style, so to speak. They should actually represent kind of the outline of the page. And that does help a screen reader as it moves through the page. But even things like having alt tags on all of your images, which are describing what the image is, a lot of people let that go by the wayside, right? Just kind of put like a Uh, some kind of brief description in the alt tag. Maybe it's the title of the image or something like that, but Google is crawling that and imagery is really invisible to Google just as it would be invisible to somebody using a screen reader. So having better alt text provides them with a richer experience. And it also provides Google with more information about what you're trying to convey. So really taking the time to go through and, and put those things together does help the crawler overall. So, And and Google puts out tools like Lighthouse that'll actually give you a score around these things. So that's sort of our glimpse into the algorithm where we can use Lighthouse to see where are they taking points away from us. We don't know officially how much of Lighthouse Google uses in their algorithm, but we can be pretty sure that they're telling us, hey, these are things you should fix to get the most bang for your buck.
0: And then Mike, right? Tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, organizations are now looking to evolve with their web technology specifically for special populations, right? Accessibility allows organizations like Apple as they release a new technology that accommodates all populations uh, with the ability to interact with their device, that device then relies on the web experience to be able to provide information and ideas that people might be looking for that take, you know, that might not be able to simply just type it in or simply click on the call to action that exists on a page right relying on advanced technology built into web experiences to allow for accommodation towards all demographics.
2: Exactly. And, and what's happening is we're seeing kind of a, a not, I don't want to say like a resurgence of accessibility, but people are definitely paying attention more. You know, there have been mm-hmm. a number of high profile lawsuits as well in the last yeah. few years that have probably brought more attention to this, particularly around e commerce brands um, where people were not able to shop as they normally would, which is, yep. you know, a problem like in a store, right? Uh, in a physical store. We have rules around uh, yeah. this stuff, how wide a door has to be, where a wheelchair ramp has to be, and, and is there handicapped parking? And But with websites, there were sort of these loose guidelines, and we knew that they had to be accessible, but nobody was ever actually coming forward and saying, I can't use this person's website or this brand's website. It's really frustrating to me. Um, and so we're coming around to that now, and now there's really great tools out there, and um, Particularly, you know, in, in the front end ecosystem, and and whether you're writing, you know, vanilla JS or, or React or Vue or whatever your framework is, a lot of these frameworks now are are baking in these tools to let you know where where that stuff should be and and if you forgot something. So it's really seeing a, a really big kind of almost like a renaissance now, mm-hmm. um, and it's really important.
1: Oh, so they give specific examples um, in various frameworks that tell you how you should you know, adhere to these accessibility guidelines or what does that kind of look like? It's more like a, like compile
2: time checks, like when when your oh, website's okay. being built and stuff or when you run certain testing frameworks. I know like React Testing Library is one of the more popular ones um, and it's it's what I use most often. They they actually write down to the, the, the way the tests actually work, the way that you can actually query DOM elements is built with the idea of querying text nodes or label nodes, which would be, how somebody using a screen reader would be able to use your site. So instead of kind of querying by class name or an ID or something in the code, you're actually querying the way a user would actually use this site. And that helps you because now you say like, oh, well, if I want to be able to test this feature that this is rendering the right way, I want to query it the way a screen reader is querying it. So it takes you a, a notch further as well.
0: Uh, you know, we could also bring it full circle here, right? Like all of this has to do with the algorithm listening to what the human is actually finding valuable or frustrating on a web experience. Right? Like mm-hmm. there's no, it's no secret as to why we've ended up here trying to accommodate everybody that potentially comes to our website, right? Every, everybody potentially has money or time to spend or something that, our brand needs uh, in order to quantify our existence. So the ability to actually listen to the consumer audience um, and then refer to the website to fine tune and capture that attention and then ultimately get ranked for it in comparison to your peer competitors who are also doing the same thing to try and capture some of that audience. it all comes full circle as you think about where does this advice from the search engine and authorities come from and it's listening to the consumer
1: yeah and that's the last part you touched on uh the competitiveness is really interesting to me so how how does that work right um do you guys kind of look at their keywords and try to um offer a more unique one or uh, look at analytics tools uh like you mentioned lighthouse um to come up with a score. How does what kind of sure. metrics are you guys mainly looking at when it comes to things like that?
0: Well, now seems like a good time to introduce uh, some of our roles and how we actually got here. Um, you know, so full time, I have the luxury of of working and good fortune of working for uh, a technology organization called BrightEdge. BrightEdge is a leading international search technology uh, that the largest and most recognizable organizations utilize in order to help them understand these deep insights about themselves and their competitor environments. Um, I also have the good fortune of actually being able to work with Heroku and their search team actually right now currently as they adopt our technology. Uh, and kind of the short track as to how I ended up here on this show today with you, Eric. But you know, there are technologies in the space that give you the color and the context to these questions, right? How are we performing Mm -hmm. and where is white space and opportunity for my brand currently right now? where are my competitors performing? Where do I have risk? Where do I have opportunity as far as my competitive environment? And then take that a step further, which is the the so what, the, the how-to, right? What are these organizations doing to be so successful? The opportunity to understand their performance holistically from a multitude of different metrics to help marketers, to help search marketers and developers and all personas within the mix, Uh, understand what competition is doing to be successful in the moment, significantly a roadmap, so to speak. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. so bright edge is a suite of tools, but, you know, very clearly uh, there are tons of different tools that are out within the space and things that are, you know, are are regularly available just through the Google environment and being able to understand what the expectations are and how to understand competition and so forth.
2: Yeah. And I think on. On my side, a lot of the, the bigger metrics tend to be sort of what you would derive from from Google's own analytics. Um, there, there's other things people use, mixed panel, segment. It, a big part of it is like looking at bounce rates and time on site. What is the
1: bounce rate when you get redirected?
2: It, it's not when you get redirected, it's it's how long. So like, do people go to another page? Like, do people stay in the site and in the experience or do they kind of okay. hit the page and leave? So when the, when the bounce rate's really high... People yeah. are just coming to the site and immediately bouncing out, and so yeah. that's kind of yeah, where the, the bounce comes from. And when I see things like that, it, there's a few things that could be wrong. It could be an SEO problem where they're surfacing for a result that they shouldn't be, that they're not offering. But that's sometimes a little bit more rare. Uh, typically, you know, you put a lot of time into SEO and keywords. So if you're getting to the top of a page, it's it's usually something that you do offer. So the issue is. Usually, what about this page? Like, what what are people not getting from this page? Um, Mm -hmm. and, And sometimes it can be even like a load time issue. You know, that's probably the other side of accessibility. Aside from just like screen readers, it's just access across network connection. So usually that magic number, you know, like over three seconds is like, you know, what they kind of talk about in e-commerce. Like once it starts creeping over three seconds, the drop off rate is precipitous. It's, it's you know, that you can look up kind of statistics and there have been a lot of studies around this that mm-hmm. we really can't let things get up that high. And and that, that can be a, any number of things that can just be. Um, slow infrastructure. It could be one, it could be shipping a lot of assets, right? Some people ship a lot of video Mm.
1: imagery and JavaScript. Like the content is heavy on like a front end, like, and on a landing page, maybe it's like a huge video in the background, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. Uh. So those huge videos become, you know, and, and sort of like, then you get that tension with design, right? They want like the big background video with the highest quality, But if most people who are loading this up on the phone go, you know, they hit the subway or they're on the phone in the train and now they can't shop or they can't get to what they're trying to do, that that video is sort of not serving its purpose. So it's easy to get tunnel vision there. So you have to really look at that. Um, And and then the other pieces is just not only your own JavaScript, like running a lot of heavy JavaScript operations, but just a lot of third-party stuff. A lot of people are running a lot of third-party chats and trackers and, Ads and all this stuff, and and slowly that starts to drag the page down. So now you can find yourself saying, like, all right, I, I'm I'm maybe learning more about my customer, but I'm also turning away a lot of customers. So we ha- it's always a balance with with some of that stuff to try and like, you know, avoid kind of adding too many third party tools and and to keep things really fast um,
1: for everybody. This is kind of you know tying into uh, the development, um, forefront as a whole and how it ties into, um, SEO, but how, how big is that? Right? Like how many developers are actually paying attention to SEO right now? And would you say like what percentage of organizations are investing in like SEO and having, um, a content team do this stuff. And especially in 2020, what's the best way to like organize all this data right
2: yeah it's uh so i think that organizations as a whole are investing more in this than than they ever have i I think the key thing to organic traffic is it's something that stays with you and i i think anybody who's ever tried as as justin and i have had to start their own any kind of brand or or work with brand new products like people who just launched something starting from zero Mm -hmm you get into this hole of just sinking money into paid, right? You're paid Mm -hmm. social, you're pay-per-click. all of a sudden, you start to realize, like, as soon as you stop that money, the well dries up and everything everything drops to zero again. But when you focus on SEO, you have this organic footprint, right? It's it's an earned footprint that stays with you. It's got longer longevity. It doesn't continue to cost you money the way that ads might. So it's people are realizing that, and they say, like, this is the kind of growth that we want to stay in, um, specifically from a development perspective. I think one of the things that I've seen that can hinder things is developers and SEOs tend to work in two separate silos. And so developers kind of develop to a design and then SEOs come in at mm-hmm. the end and and in in typical kind of agency fashion there's sort of a tension there because there's not enough time to get that thing in or uh, we wish we knew that we needed routes for this or or we want you know the search experience isn't very crawlable right maybe we built something really interactive like a interactive quick search with like lazy loading assets and stuff and now mm-hmm. it's not great for the, for the bots and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's better for the users, but maybe it's not, right? Because a lot of your users are still going back to Google to type in search terms and they're not doing it on your website. So you're still losing that transient traffic. So having SEO involved early, I think is the trend that needs to happen more. It's not so much investment. like People know that this is important. But developers and seos i think need to really come together and work together on this stuff because that's how you know justin and i work you know when we we have our small agency cause of a kind and everything we do we're right next to each other with it you know when we build a website from the mm-hmm. ground up search is taken into account right at the design phase from day one and we've developed kind of a flow where we know that the core things you need sort of the table stakes things like title and meta tags and h1s of course but also how can we specifically craft this experience to target people for that industry do, do we need reviews pages do, do we prefer to have a, a team page do we how do the how should the products be laid out what what should the categories be and a lot of that can be derived mm-hmm. from search history uh, of people. So we're always working on that together. And I think that's the thing that gets really hard to do, though, when teams start uh, working in silos, I guess.
0: And, you know, even at the even at the level that I have exposure to um, with Bright Edge, you know, I I have the fortune Mm -hmm. of working with some of the most recognizable brands in the world. And, you know, I can't tell you what the what the spread is between, you know, well-established, highly mature search teams that integrate with the rest of the organization from, you know, brand marketing to R&D you know, all the way down to a single threaded just thought about SEO should be included in our, you know, globally represented brand. You know, there's a significant spread where I see it over a large spectrum continuing to evolve. And as search proves itself and becomes more important, I continuously see the head scratch moment, which is, man, we should have done this a couple of years ago, right? Uh And really search is about creating this foundation for your brand. You know, Google is a thing that's working 24 hours and does, as Mike said, does not require you to, uh, you know, invest more liquid into in order to perform if you come from an SEO first methodology. And then again, mm. to bring it full circle, when we say an SEO first development methodology, we are developing for an audience. If you truly, as a developer, understand your consumer persona, it might, in fact, change the way that you actually create this product, service, or solution for that audience and that's really where search becomes really, uh, you know, the the art side of the science to it, which is, do, do you truly understand the persona? Um, and developing for that persona is evolving as we take SEO into consideration. It significantly impacts the way that developers think about the product that they're creating. It, it almost removes their own personal emotion. You know, developers are are attached to the products that they work on and, the, and and what they create in this world. And if they think about it, not from their own portfolio perspective, but from who are they creating it for, it actually significantly impacts the course towards development.
1: Mm, so like what is the exact persona of the target consumer who is searching for like specific keywords that might be related to your website, right? right. So, so yeah. I'm just trying to understand uh, maybe a little more concretely but what is an example of something that you've seen um, to like optimize um, a search result in terms of either a sitemap or a keyword?
0: Sure. A really good example of this, Eric, is for an organization that we have the pleasure of working with um, called Factory Direct Chemicals. Factory Direct mm-hmm. Chemicals is an organization actually out of New York here uh, where they are a retailer that sells eco clean products and solutions. Uh, and those can be things like drain openers. Those can be things like, uh, hmm. irrigation supply for agricultural, um, dust control, all sorts of different things that, that are normally maybe toxic to environments, but they have eco-friendly solutions for now. A very interesting niche to try and stand your business up, especially when your domain name, Factory Direct Chemicals, uh, doesn't necessarily describe a very environmentally friendly uh, experience. So right off the bat, they're starting with a little bit of a struggle uh, as to their brand identity and to what their intention is to their consumer audience. Now, short of a migration to, you know, a, a, an eco version of their of their brand name, you kind of have to stay within the confines of what that brand currently is. Now, as we engage with that team, we have to advise them as to what are the things that they can do to ultimately improve their recognition for that brand and the products that they currently service. So now it becomes about understanding their consumer audience and understanding their competitive space. For example, Mm -hmm. their competition could be somebody like a Lowe's um, or an Ace Hardware store that carries their products. But ultimately competes against them, right? They're they're organizations that resell their service and just due to sheer authority and size of the organization will compete with them for visibility on a search result page. However, this is the brand themselves, the manufacturer. They have an authority. They they have uh, an expertise that does allow for them to to perform at the level of all these other big box retailers. So as we advise them and help them to make decisions, we turn to big box retailers. What are they doing to perform so well? Everything from a technical perspective, all the way up to a new development perspective, all the way to new content that they might be putting out in the world and how do you tell this comprehensive story the outperformer? maybe it's a big box retailer or maybe it's a a blog talking about some of their information. Um, what are those organizations doing to be so successful? And that advice can come from a multitude of different perspectives. It can be, you know, technically fine tuning the mobile experience to perform a little better and to capture more of that mobile audience. It can be, uh, you know, redesigning your images and hyper optimizing your calls to action and, you know, adding new bottom lines for your email collection list. All of these things are about Mm. what does your consumer audience expect from your website and why are they going somewhere else and not to you. And you take all that insight, you package that up and you have hopefully a team on the ground that can execute on that deliverable.
1: Maybe there's a question for Mike, but um, what does the future look like? Either, you know, in the SEO industry as a whole, or um, development specifically, will it be even more JavaScript heavy, or, um, like you said, um, kind of invest in performance as well as accessibility, and come up with a more SEO first approach. And you guys have talked a little bit about that. But Um, What kind of trends have you been noticing? And if we can make some predictions on where this is going, what do you guys think there?
2: You know, I don't think that JavaScript heavy apps are necessarily going anywhere. I think that people love the interactivity, the power that they push, um, specifically with web apps in particular. You know, I think we're Mm -hmm. on this steady march towards like native app like performance from web applications, right? And, and JavaScript enables things like that. So I don't wanna you know, downplay some, some people are very anti-JavaScript. I definitely don't want huh, to say, yeah. be like anti It also enhances things like keyboard navigation and and a whole bunch of other accessibility features can be enhanced with JavaScript. So the key thing I think is working to bring the bundle sizes down, right? And we see this every single framework no matter which one you use, all of them are getting smaller rather than bigger year over year, right? They're all trying to push out there with giving you more power with less weight, right? And all the way down mm-hmm. to a framework like Preact, which is only three kilobytes, right? Um, as, a, as a library dependency and, and a framework like Svelte that's uh, kind of just seeing the early stages of, of its takeoff now is, is a JavaScript framework that's really compiles down to just vanilla JavaScript, no library dependencies. So it's, it's showing even more speed gains than any of our previous frameworks by taking this compiled approach. So we're seeing on the web app side, people are taking this very seriously to try and get the speed up, to try and offer even more accessibility tools inside, like the compile step. Svelte also takes that a step further. And then Mm -hmm. on the website side, like specifically like public facing web pages, we're seeing kind of this rise of static site generators where people are writing apps um, using maybe a tool like Gatsby or Gridsome, um, and it compiles down to static pages. So you're still getting this like server side rendered um, experience. Where you know the you know and server side rendering is is huge for SEO, but now we're getting just complete statically built pages um, that serve and then get hydrated by the JavaScript. So we we are seeing people take that very seriously, where they're like, I want to get this interactivity in, but I really want to be able to deliver it in a in a rapid way. Yeah,
1: because I didn't think front end would be much of a factor here, since it's mostly like what the content renders on the page. But I guess if you think about like you know loading. A static page from some dynamic server rendered data then that makes sense right yeah
2: exactly exactly like sometimes you know we we do a lot of this you know with with uh with our clients um in our web builds is building something statically is not always an option you know they have lots Mm -hmm. and lots of blog articles or they want to be able to publish a product immediately and sometimes it's not an option to do a static build and you have to do server rendered um, but there's frameworks like Next.js, which we use, um, and Nuxt, if you're a, a Vue person. Um, th- they work really well, and they continue to push the limits of getting getting the pages served faster dynamically, but also kind of like Next.js toe in this line where you can have static rendered pages and dynamic rendered pages living in the same code base. Um, So we're seeing a lot of this with the rise of serverless technologies, the ability to kind of mix and match these different tools as you need them. So I would say the future is definitely really bright. I think in terms of delivering more interactivity with less weight to the page, it's really bright. This is sort of the, I think that's going to be the future. There is definitely a little bit of a resurgence to the old way as well, where, you know, people are like, I'm just going to work with vanilla JavaScript and mm-hmm. and kind of do that. And I actually think that that's really important too, like vanilla JavaScript, CSS, like that, I mean, that's how I got my start. It's important to know that and know that like, you should use that when you don't need a framework. And I think that that's the other piece, like people are starting to say like, I don't want to see myself as a framework developer, like I want to be, I really want to know how to use all the tools, you know, and if I have to use if I if I have to use vanilla JS, or if that's the right tool for the job, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to keep this site really lightweight. So I think that we're seeing developers expand their toolkit to meet this new kind of demand of both accessibility and speed.
0: You know i also have some i some ideas for how you know the world is going to evolve around the web and not Mm -hmm. all of mine are about performance and speed you know sometimes brands have to make sacrifices for their identity and ultimately to capture the cutting edge that meets the needs of their environment and for example one of the first things that comes to my brain is development for augmented reality which is something that's you know currently being heavily tested within google um, native sites. So I work with a lot of really well-known makeup brands and a lot of really well-known interior design and contracting brands that are using augmented reality on their sites to help mm-hmm. their consumer audience understand what would that experience look like. Their
1: landing page yeah. is uh, AR. Wow, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Like
0: They all have like a certain custom build that's on their website or a technology that allows them to take their product portfolio uh, and allow organizations to create and experience uh, through a level of engagement. Uh, you know, what does the environment expect, right? And then fast forward, now you're in a pandemic, right? Now your brick and mortar experience slows down and now you're heavily relying on the development interaction with, you know, an SEO first mentality to try and identify is the risk worth the reward, right? Is the loss of performance worth the innovation in augmented reality or the innovation in like a, a tip to tail full media service, like, you know, full video transcription, um, you know, or is it more important for the business to just continuously bleed cash to a paid strategy and not evolve your mm-hmm. marketing strategy and not really build yourself for a sustainable future? So, you know, I see development and Mike and I go back and forth, like, is the juice worth the squeeze all the time? And most of the time it's not really worth the squeeze. But if you think about your consumer and like, what do they want? I'll use the example of, you know, Iron Man's Jarvis. Right. Like that's not oh, so yeah. far fetched for, a, for a, yeah. a phone to help you with your entire ver- verbal experience and be the command center of your life. But that relies on a developer having insight into that to have created it for you to find. Right. And mm-hmm. that's just a, it's it's where we're headed. And, you know, organizations will choose, you know, is it worth the effort, um, you know, a year down the line to be a pioneer in a new level of technology that sets them apart from competition?
2: That could be the future too, right? Yeah, think, voice. Thinking too just about voice and searchability around voice. Like there are more mm-hmm. search engines than just Google when you think about Alexa. And as more of these kind of smart home like devices pop up, you know, they could be crawling the web and kind of building their own search algorithms and, and we'll have to adapt to that. So I think it's really important to to think about that as well.
0: You know, and, and, and Mike, we talk about this sometimes, the urgency that developers should have when creating this stuff, because everything is moving to personalization, right? Like your Alexa knows you, probably knows your, you know, your whole schedule at this point. So that personalization, if I'm a brand, I, I have like very limited opportunity to be part of, you know, your minimum requirements for life. Like where do you get your morning news from? That brand won you, whatever. It's probably the same brand over and over. You know so developers should have this urgency as they create things and put them out into the world to be part of you know this minimal need that consumers have like we are all creatures of the same habits and our technology is no different also what's really interesting here is that when
1: i walked into this podcast today i thought we're going to be talking about search but it's just so much more and encompasses a lot more and you guys touched on a lot of interesting points So I think we're at time here, but um, if you guys have any advice to our listeners as to what kind of tools and publications to look at or play around with, if someone would be interested in learning more about SEO, uh, where would they go? Any resources that come to mind?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll start off. I, I think the first one I mentioned it a few times is Lighthouse, you know. Lighthouse is probably the the single most important tool in in the developer's toolkit. It's Google for, owned, right? Yeah, it is Google owned. Okay. You run it; it kind of gives you a score around um, speed, performance, best practices, uh, accessibility, SEO, as well as if you're doing a progressive web app, it'll it'll help you with that as well. Um, so I think that Lighthouse is kind of like your your general web tool, and even if you're building pages that are password protected like dashboards and things like that lighthouse will still help you because discoverability is a universal thing even if google won't be crawling that site those best practices are still going to help you build a better kind of a web ui in general for a product and then just around publications i i you know a lot of things um i think smashing magazine is great a list apart is great uh those are two publications that i read because i think that they kind of give a little bit of an alternative perspective to kind of the push towards heavier pages, more JavaScript, um, and, and kind of give you other ways of thinking about this, thinking about how to keep your pages lightweight and fast, how to use a little more CSS and how to, how to have a little more finesse around your development. I think there's a, there's enough resources out there that'll teach you how to make your page heavier. There aren't so many publications like those two that'll kind of will help you, especially a list apart. I think um, you know that that one really will help you with kind of like the the design side of things, but also like helping you kind of how to keep your pages more performant um, and sort of provide that alternative perspective.
0: Yeah, from, from my perspective, you know, we'll keep it focused on the developer uh, persona. You know, I, I obviously work for a technology organization, but that's, you know, focused to the marketer. So, you know, from the developer perspective, the greatest piece of advice that I can possibly give you is a reverse engineer of what I would tell to an SEO, to a search marketer, you know, find a search marketer that has a development first met- mentality. There are plenty of them within organizations that are very well-rounded. Even if you find generalists, right, digital generalists, find a partner within the organization to help you understand what the business's focus is and how you can better create your portion of the technology of the service of the environment to suit the consumer need. Right? The individual that you're really focused on is trying to make partners internally within your organizations or trying to find consultant additives to your private organization uh, that truly have an understanding of search marketing, that truly have an understanding of the consumer that you're trying to target. And what this gives you the ability to do is navigate things like demand and navigate things like seasonality and, and opportunity within the marketplace and, you know, my greatest piece of advice is not really about a piece of software or technology It is really about, you know, bridging gaps and evangelizing search within your development environment and truly becoming a student of what is currently happening within, you know, the thing that has the majority of our attention, which is search engines in one one way, shape or form. They're all part of all of our lives uh, at some moment. And that's an important chasm to cross when you start thinking about, you know, how do you develop for tomorrow and how do you create technology that ultimately is incredibly valuable and sustainable as far as our consumers, turning them into customers.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Justin, for your guys' time. Really appreciate this. Extremely grateful and having this opportunity to learn so much more about SEO. I'm definitely going to look into some of those resources that you described there. And for those listeners, we'll be able to link those below after this. Um, Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you, Eric. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.